0: One other announcement: We have so many things we need to be praying about. Our new students are coming in. New ministries are beginning. College ministry from our church is a new one's beginning this year with uh, Ben and and a uh, crew of his, uh, Colin, some guys that are really going to be um, working on the campus, and Doug's still going to be helping them. But uh, and then all, every year, new international students come in, and we need to be praying for God's wisdom about. What we're supposed to be doing next as far as building to facilitate all the precious people God is giving us. so, I want to have a prayer meeting on Friday night at seven. And so if you can come, we're not going to go all night, we'll go till we're done. Um, just meet here at the church at seven, and uh, it would every time we do that, God gives us direction. And we just haven't done that for a while. I guess we haven't been desperate enough. It's OK to be desperate when we're desperate towards the Lord. So we want to do that. And then on Saturday, Carl's coming, and so if you can help move Carl into his garage, probably only be an hour, let us know about that too. This has been just a blessing, as Ben brings the word to us every week, whole chapter at a time. That's why we're taking a chapter at a time. So it can be a little bit more like the Corinthians heard it. Now, there was a letter, so they heard it all at once. The conviction was impacted like that, I'm sure. We're going to spread it out. So while there's so much more to mine here, we like taking these big chunks also, and it's been a blessing. You say, "Where are you going next?" Well, Ben already has Second Corinthians memorized, so we might just go there next. We're praying about that. Ben, come and minister to us.
1: Good morning. 1 Corinthians chapter 13. If I speak in the tongues of men and of angels, but have not love. I'm a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. And if I have prophetic powers and understand all mysteries and all knowledge, and if I have all faith so as to remove mountains, I have not love. I am nothing. If I give away all I have,
0: Father, we thank you. We come to this chapter, it's a high place in Scripture, where you describe for us what your love is for us, what true love is, who you are. Lord, I pray that I might be spirit filled today, that each one of us might be spirit filled as hearers, that we not might not be hearers only, but obedient to the word. And Lord, for those who are here today that may not know you as Savior, they may have religion, but no relationship, Lord, that today would be the day of their salvation when they, for the first time, you open their heart to understand how much Jesus loved, how much he did in providing salvation. then, Lord, draw them to yourself. We'll give you all the glory in Jesus' name. Amen. First Corinthians 13, God's love. The Bible's simplest description of God is God is love. 1 John 4, 7, beloved, let us love one another for God, for love is from God. And everyone who loves is born of God and knows God. The one who does not love does not know God for God is love. Love is the most blessed manifestation of the character of God. John continues, and the one who abides in love abides in God, and God abides in him. Therefore, the simplest description of Christian character is also love. The supreme measure and example of agape love is God's love. John three sixteen, for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son, that whosoever believes in him should not have perish but have everlasting life. You've probably heard. So this, this love preached before, there's three different kinds of love. There's phileo love, that's brotherly love, that's a conditional love. You love me, and so I'll love you, and you treat me good, I'll treat you good. Brotherly love. Philadelphia is called the city of brotherly love. On the way back from Florida one time, Christy and I threw, threw, flew from Florida to, through Philadelphia, and we found out not a lot of love there. If you're from Philadelphia, I'm sorry, but I just, wow, I'd never seen such a group of passengers so bent on destruction and anger because we were delayed a little bit early in the morning getting through. And I thought, you guys are from Philadelphia? Do you know what your name means? Same is true of the Corinthians, though, right? This was a people that God called saints, set apart ones, and yet they're suing one another. There's immorality. They can't even have the Lord's table without leaving somebody out. And Paul has to say, this is not the Lord's table. And he, re, he gives them again the Lord's table, what it's all about. That the same night in which Jesus was betrayed, he took bread and broke it. They're arguing about who is the greatest. And yet in love, he ministers to them. There's Eros love. That's when a beautiful young girl walks by a young man and he says, I'm in love, I'm going to marry her. That's not love. God made that too. But it's also very self-serving love. Agape love is God's love because it lays down its own life for the one in need. It's not a feeling. It's not an emotion. Agape love is a decision that only God and his children can make to minister. The Bible says in Romans chapter 5, verse 8, Scarcely for a righteous man will one die, for adventure for a good man some would even dare to die, but God commended his love toward us, and that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. John 3, 16 again, God saw the need, a world in sin, and he died for his enemies. God is love. We see, first of all, in the first three verses, that love is essential. It's a non-negotiable for God-blessed ministry. These people had plenty of giftedness, but they had no love. We see the church in Ephesus in Revelation chapter one. Here's a church that had all kinds of doctrine and theology down, but they had left their first love. So Paul says, if I speak with the tongue of men or of angels and have not love, I'm just noise. I've become A noisy gong or a clanging cymbal, what is more distracting than that? If we're not ministering the truth in love, then we're just a distraction. In fact, how many people have stumbled over loveless truth? He goes on to say, if I have the gift of prophecy and know all mysteries and all knowledge... And even have all faith so as to remove mountains. Can you imagine that kind of example? And have not love, I am nothing. Wow. So at best without love or distraction we're nothing. And then he says, if I give all my possessions to feed the poor, and I surrender my body to be burned and have not love, it profits nothing. It's not worth anything to man. It's not worth anything to God. It's a non-negotiable. Think about that in counseling. In counseling, we can come to a situation without prayer and give true information from the scripture and it just falls on deaf ears. And so many times it's because the one that's giving is not loving. We're not trying to walk where they're walking. We're not trying to hurt like they're hurting. We just give the information coldly. I wonder why it doesn't make a difference. Then in verses 4 through 8a, we see love's description. You see, this isn't a definition of love. This is a description of love because the definition is God. God is love. Love is patient. Love is kind. It's not jealous. So when you're jealous of your wife, or your husband, as not love. That's fear, right? Bible says in 1 John 4 that if there's fear, that's love not made perfect. Love made perfect doesn't fear. Love doesn't brag. Love is not arrogant. It does not act unbecomingly. It does not seek its own. It's not provoked. Get this. It doesn't take into account a wrong suffered. What does that mean? Love never keeps a list. Well, that's just silly. I mean, they hurt me before. If I, you know, the old saying, I'm sure it's in the book of Hesitation someplace, fool me once, shame on you. Fool me twice, shame on me. No. Phileo love loves to a point. Agape love doesn't stop, and it doesn't keep a list. Why do we keep lists? Well, first of all, because we can't forget the amazing thing about God is, he said, I've taken your sin as far away as the east is from the west. I've buried it in the deepest sea. Get this. He said, I remember it no more. He'll never hold it to your account. Very difficult for us as believers. What do we have to do? We have to trust God. It's fear that builds walls. Say, so, well, you hurt me this much. You're not going to hurt me again. Well, isn't that just wisdom? No, that's fear. Fear. It's fear. If I give you another chance, and and so many people talking to me when I'm in counseling, they'll say, but I can't trust him anymore. I can't trust her anymore. And that's supposed to really weigh on my conscience. Like, oh, oh no, they can't trust them. Guess what? None of us are worthy of trust. Maybe God's trying to get your focus off of that person onto God Because Jesus is the one that never fails. And we begin to partake of his love. Though you know you've been hurt in the past, you can actually put your trust in God, put your focus on him and say, well, they're probably going to let me down again, but God won't. God won't. You can insulate yourself. You can build walls. That's why some people say, well, you know, there's too many hypocrites in the church. Well, there's hypocrites at the grocery store, but you still go there. Of course, there's hypocrites in the church. None of us live up to what we profess. We profess to be Christians. That means little Christs. We're not there yet. That's why Paul says we need the love of Christ. Look around our church sometime. God has taken people from every walk and level of life and put them there from all around the world It's such a blessing to go to other parts of the world and meet believers. You may not even be able to speak their language, but there is a kinship. There's a relationship already because of Christ's love, not because of your sameness. And God takes all those different kinds of people at different levels of maturity, and he puts them in a church, and he says, love one another. Well, what's he going to do in the meantime? Well, just like getting married, we married Ben and, and Jordan yesterday right here, and they are wonderful young people. You can ask his grandma. There's probably not a better boy ever born. She's right over here. And I would tend to agree. He's, But you know what? I guarantee Jordan in a little bit is going to find some things that bug her about Ben and vice versa, vice versa. Because God uses marriage as this tool of teaching us how to love. They think they're really in love. They have no idea. They have no idea. God, doesn't that right, guys? God teaches you all the problems you didn't know you had. And now God gave you an angel to point those things out. You should be so thankful. And then you love anyway. You know, the marriage vows, we go over Ephesians 5.18. It's very short, very much to the point. And it says, wives, you submit to your husbands like he's Jesus. And you go, what? To all the people who aren't in church, because the women go, you know. Yeah, but you know he's not Jesus. That's why he said just in the little bit, a couple verses before, you need to be filled with the Spirit. You need to be filled with the Spirit so there's grace to be obedient in spite of their actions. And then it says to the men men, you love your wives as much as Christ loved the church. That's also impossible. You need to be filled with the Spirit so you can have that grace to love. The scripture goes on love doesn't keep a list. Love does not act unbecomingly, does not seek its own, does not take into account a wrong suffered, does not rejoice in unrighteousness, but rejoices with the truth. Get this, it bears all things. It doesn't come to a point and quit. Say, well, you don't understand what I put up with with this guy or with this woman, with my boss, with my friend, with the people I'm counseling with. See, when you fail, understand that was you, that wasn't God. Because God's love bears all things, it believes all things, not negatively. We have this inborn sense of justice, you know. And we think we know what's right, and we we think there's also a gift of criticism. Uh, We would be nice and say, no, it's the gift of critique, so we can just help people kind of get things straightened out, right? The gift of critique. And so we come into a situation and we see it and we say, well, I think if you adjust here or you just adjust a little bit that way, I'll believe otherwise, man, it's not going to work. And we believe the worst first. That's not what he's saying here. I believe they're going to fail. God knows all things, but his love believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. Love never fails. That's God's love. You may be in a tough counseling situation. And I'll tell you what, when you're bearing with somebody, going through hard times, it will wear you out or else you're not identifying with them. It's tiring to keep coming, bringing people that are struggling with the truth and struggling with hurt and difficulty, keep bringing them back to truth, keep pointing them back to Jesus, keep feeding them the word of God over and over again. But love does that. It bears all things. It believes that there's a resolution. It believes there's restitution. It believes there's hope. It never fails. And I began as I was studying this week to think about something and I was affirmed in my thought, which happens every once in a while. I'm not wrong. Wiersbe said, we can replace the word love with Jesus. This changed everything for me. When you look at these same Passage of Scripture, verses 4 through 8a, and say, Jesus is patient. Jesus is kind. He's not jealous. Jesus doesn't brag, and he's not arrogant. Who has a right to be arrogant if anybody was? He spoke the worlds into existence. He holds everything together by his power today, and yet he's not arrogant. He does not act unbecomingly. Jesus does not seek his own. Jesus is not provoked. That's really good to know. Because when we sin high-handedly, know we're doing wrong, understand Jesus loves you just the same as when you're obedient. How is that possible? That he loves disobedient Christians as much as he loves obedient Christians. How is that possible? That's God's love. He's not provoked. He does not take into account a wrong suffered. Oh, isn't that wonderful? Wonderful. He's not keeping a list on you. He does not rejoice in unrighteousness. He rejoices with the truth. Jesus bears all things. Jesus believes all things. Jesus hopes all things. Jesus endures all things. You can quit when Jesus quits. Jesus never fails. Isn't that awesome? That's Jesus. How did Jesus endure when he bore our sins? This week in small group at John's house, we were studying John Bragg, not MacArthur. We don't rate that visit yet. We were studying Mark 15. And uh, John Bragg brought a quote in from John MacArthur that just changed everything for me about the cross. And, And sometimes these are things that we know in our head, but then God he just impacts our life with Him. We sang about it just a little bit ago, the last song that we sang. The nails in His hands, the nails in His feet, it tells us how much Jesus loved us. Because that's all we can understand. So much in Hollywood is put upon the scourging of Jesus and the nails through His wrists, the nails through His ankles, and all the physical pain but that's not why Jesus was sweating, as it were, great drops of blood in the garden before he went to the cross. What Jesus knew he was going to face was the cup of the wrath of God. Because when Jesus died on the cross, he took upon him the wrath that was due us. It wasn't just the wrath that men gave when they nailed him to the cross. It was God's wrath. Isaiah 53 Prophesied that it pleased the Father to crush the Son because of those who would bring to Himself by that sacrifice. And we will never know, as His children, what that means. He was going to face the wrath of God and separation from God because of our sin. John MacArthur says this Hell came to Israel from noon till three o'clock. Remember, they crucified Jesus at nine o'clock in the morning. And from nine to three, he looked out along the crowd, and normally what happened, Dr. Bookman pointed this out to us, your brothers, your family would show up for crucifixion because they could keep the birds away and try to relieve any extra suffering that would be caused by animals that would come because you might hang there for days. And Jesus looked around, and his brothers didn't come. Jesus didn't know at the time. If his brothers would be saved. Remember, he surrendered the use of his omniscience. And it must have broke his heart that his brothers though rejected him in following him as a disciple didn't even come to his crucifixion. Families always came. So in that first three hours, at some point, he turns to John and he says, John, behold your mother. Mother, behold your son. And the Pharisees kept walking in front and Mocking him and saying, he saved others, save yourself, come down from the cross. But he couldn't, because he had to hang there for you and I. One of the thieves stopped the other thief and his mocking also. And Jesus turned to that thief and he said, today you'll be with me in paradise. And the soldiers gambled over his garments Somebody offered him some myrrh, but he turned that down because that would deaden his senses and he would take the full impact of the fury of God and the fury of man in his crucifixion. From noon to three o'clock, hell came to Jerusalem. John points out that in the Old Testament, we always think of God as light, but God is also darkness. Darkness. And God will be present in His darkness for all eternity in hell as He brings punishment on those that reject His his Son as Savior. So darkness came from 12 to 3 o'clock. Hell came to Jerusalem. For three hours, hell came to Golgotha as God unleashed the full extent of everlasting punishment on His Son. Wrath, in the words of Isaiah, with fierce anger. As God is the true power behind hell's punishing experience, God is the true power behind the darkness of Calvary. For here he unleashes hell on his son. This was the cup that Jesus anticipated in the garden, the cup of wrath. This is why it was such a revolting anticipation that made him sweat great drops of blood because in those three hours, think of it, Jesus suffered the eternal hell of the people through human history who would be saved. He bore their eternal punishment together, and he did it in three hours because he was the God-Man. That was love. In the garden, he suffered, and his disciples slept. And I think that he woke he woke them up for the last time. He'd pleaded with the Father, Father, if it be your will, let this cup pass from me. Nevertheless, not Not my will, but thy will be done. I think he woke him up for the last time, and that's when John heard that great high priestly prayer in John 17. And he said to the Father like it was already done. The Bible says in Luke that angels came and ministered to him. Medical doctors tell us that if that happens, that you're under such stress that you actually bleed through your skin, you're going to die. But Jesus would go to the cross, so the angels come, and they strengthen him, they minister to him. And then in confidence, as a warrior ready to face the battle, he says, now, Father, glorify your Son with that glory we had before when the world began because I accomplished everything that you wanted me to accomplish on the earth. It wasn't done yet. That's fulfilled when he cries out to Telestai in John 19.39. He endures all of that. And sometimes we see the crucifixion You die of asphyxiation. You can't breathe anymore, but it's been six hours. The Son of God is still strong. He just says simply, I'm thirsty, because he's going to clear his throat for the cry of victory. And they bring him vinegar. Remember, at the end of the battle, he said, my God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? Eli, Eli, yama sabachthani. And they, in mockery, they heard what he said. In mockery, this, oh, he cries for Elijah because there was a Jewish tradition that Elijah would show up for a righteous person because Elijah didn't die. Remember, he was carried away in the fiery chariot. Oh, let's give him a little wine, keep him going. Maybe Elijah will show up. They're mocking him again. Their mocking never ceases. He takes the vinegar, clears his throat, Pulls himself up and in full voice and strong voice, he cries the victor's cry to tell us, Die. It is finished. Isn't that amazing? If you think that Jesus did all he did on the cross so you'd have the chance to do all you could do, you're a blasphemer. Jesus said it was completed. It doesn't take your good works to get you to heaven, he finished it at. The cross, it was done. That was his battle cry. And then he looked to heaven and he said, Father, into your hands, I commend my spirit. The relationship's back. And it says in John 19 that he pillowed his head and he dismissed his spirit. In Mark chapter 5, the centurion who'd been watching all of this He'd probably seen the illegal trial, probably saw the arrest where they all knocked, 600 knocked to the ground when Jesus just said his name, I am. They all get back, dust himself off, wonder what happened. Somebody tripped in the front, I guess. And like soldiers, he asked them for orders again. Who are you here to arrest? They say, Jesus of Nazareth. He said, I said, I'm he, then you take me and you let these go. The Bible says in John 18, so that it might be fulfilled of all the father gave him. He did not lose one. He was keeping them just like he keeps you actively. He protects you. The centurion saw him through the illegal trial, probably. Saw him with the questioning because he was in charge of this crucifixion with Pilate. Watches as his soldiers brutally beat him. They blindfold Jesus and take turns mocking him when they put the robe on him, and put the, the crown of thorns, and they, they, they hit him with a reed and drive the thorns into his brow. And what does Jesus do all of it? As a lamb before his shears is done, the Bible says in Isaiah, is dumb. he opened not his mouth for you and me. They gave him their best. They beat him up. By the time they brought him out, and Pilate had him scourged, The Bible prophesied that his vision would be marred more than any other man has ever been beat up. And Pilate brings him out thinking that the Jews would have pity on their king. And they replied, crucify him, release Barabbas. We'll have no king but Caesar. So he carries his cross until he stumbles. Simon Cyrene carries it the rest of the way. They nail him to the cross. The soldier's been watching this. He's been seeing these crucifixions before. And the Bible says there in Mark 15, as he saw him breathe his last, he said, surely this was the Son of God. Why? Because our Savior didn't back away. He was never out of control. He laid his life down. The the Bible says in John 10 18, no one takes my life from me. I lay it down of my own accord and I will take it up again. He went there on purpose for those he would save, you and I. He took the full force of God's wrath. What great love. And so that leads us to decision because the last part of this chapter, 8 through 13, love is a decision, not a feeling or an emotion. The, the Corinthians were spiritual babies, Warren Wiersbe says, and like babies, they were striving for the temporary and neglecting the permanent. They were wanting passing spiritual gifts instead of lasting Christian character. They wanted what they wanted now, whether it was immorality or pride or arrogance. They wanted it now, and yet Christ had called them to follow Him. They were His children. He called them saints. So Paul reminds them, if there are gifts of prophecy, they will be done away. If there are tongues, they will cease. If there is knowledge, it will be done away. For we know in part and we prophesy in part. But when, that, when, the, partial, when, the, when the perfect comes, the partial will be done away. He said, you're focused on the wrong things. You're focusing on giftedness and people's abilities when you should be focusing on Jesus Christ and how can I be obedient and love one another? I'm so thankful for our elders here. We come to situations we never say, hey, we've handled this before. We don't need to pray about this. We always go back to the scripture and we always go to prayer. Because we don't want to run off on our own there's only been one burning bush, right? Only one. So every situation we come to, we've gotta go back, what did God really say about this, whether it's a problem or it's a decision? That's what all of us need to be doing. What does God want me to do today? In this situation, what does love call for? Because that will match what Jesus will. So when I was a child, I used to speak like a child. Think like a child, reason like a child. It's time to grow up. There are Christians who are Christians, and they're just spectators. They've received Christ. They watch, they watch the, the, the pastor do his thing, and the people lead music, the people teach their, their children, but they're not really participants in ministry. And so they're babies. They're critics. Like Teddy Roosevelt said, they're on that gray mass that sits in the bleachers and watches and critiques the man who's actually in the, re- the arena, whose face is covered with blood and sweat and dirt. Who tries again and again to do the deed, even while failing greatly. That's better than the people are just spectators, because the spectators never grow up. It's amazing to me to see some of our counseling just goes on and on and on and on with people. Listen, here it is. Let me give you a short... Powerful, scriptural marriage counseling. It's all you really need. Husbands, you love your wife like Christ loved the church and laid his life down for her. You live and sacrifice to her. Wives, you submit to your husbands like he's Jesus. End of instruction. But you don't know my husband. No, but God does. He knows you. Paul goes on to say, we know in part, but then we'll know fully. Even as we have been fully know, when you stand before God, it's not so much about how you feel about things. What does the word say? You see, God's not waiting for you to get a feeling before you decide to be obedient and love. See, grace will take over when you make the right decision to trust God and obey. Say, well, I don't know how I can do this. God likes, I think, to say, watch this. Just obey. Just obey. The old gospel song says, trust and obey for there's no other way to be happy in Jesus but to trust and obey. That's love too. But they'll take advantage. I can't trust them. Trust God. God fully knows What you're dealing with now, it's right there in scripture. He fully knows everything. He knows the situations. He knows you're in from the beginning. He knows how he saved you on purpose. He knows you for the purpose you've been saved and how he gifted you to fulfill the purpose for which he saved you. Just begin today. You know what situation you're dealing with. I don't. But God does, and that's more important. God fully knows. Now abide, faith, hope, and love, these three. But the greatest of these is love. Every decision, every trial, you choose the eternal or you choose the temporary. You love God or you love self. You follow Christ or you go to bypass meadow. Matthew 16, 24, if anyone wishes to come after me, he must deny himself, take up his cross, and follow me. Where was Jesus going? To the place of love, the place of sacrifice. See, love isn't a feeling, it's a decision to meet the need of the one that's in need, not just how's it going to affect me. Be obedient. We love God, why? Because he first loved us. He died for his enemies. God gave us the Holy Spirit as salvation. When you partook of salvation, you became partaker of the life essence of Jesus Christ. You became partaker of His life, which includes the potential to love just like He loved. But instead of quenching the Holy Spirit, you actually have to be obedient and trust Him. And so we read Scripture because Scripture now informs our thinking. So we can make right decisions. John 1.14 says, The Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we saw His glory. Glories of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. When we obey truth, grace follows. I remember one of the deepest, hardest trials for Christianity in our life was when we got up in the morning, we found that God had taken Jesse home to be with him. Said, just gone. Healthy baby, gone. And remember how God ministered to my heart. Because the Bible says in everything give thanks. And I didn't go to the Bible that day. It was in my heart. And I thought to myself, Lord, how do you give thanks about this? I didn't even know. I just knew that if I was obedient, that God could bring comfort. That's all I knew. You know what? That wasn't because I was so smart because the Holy Spirit was ministering every single step. So I picked his little body up. I took him in the living room. Had the boys sit around me. I said, "Okay, guys. The Bible says we have to give thanks, so that's what's going to do. We're going to do. We're going to give thanks." So we did. Once again at the coffin, we gathered around. All those young people gathered behind us, and I think they thought, "What in the world is going to happen now?" We bowed our head and we prayed. And God filled us with such grace and unexplainable joy. But it wasn't because we were so great. Because I made a decision. I'm not putting on any act anymore. I'm not going to act like the pastor. He's going to have to carry me now. I'm going to give people some false hope about when, you know, you just carry God. When you obey, he'll lead you the next step. That's why it's so important to hide God's word in your heart so the Holy Spirit has something to give you. And I was going down to pick out the casket, and I thought, Lord, because He put in my mind, no trial has taken you, but such is common to man. God is faithful, I'll always provide a way through the trial. Well, that common part doesn't always give you a lot of hope. It's like, oh, well, so a lot of people have been here before. Okay, Lord. I think you're overestimating my ability. You've heard me say this before. It's like the Holy Spirit whispered in my ear. I'm not looking at you, son. And some of you are in trials right now. And you know Jesus, and you're going your own way, and you wonder why it's so rough. You wonder why your marriage is so rough, because you say, I'm not submitting to him. I'm not going to keep loving her see, God didn't give you a marriage and give you the instruction about marriage in Ephesians 5.18 just so you could have a really cool marriage. He wants your home to be a picture to a lost and dying world of self-sacrificing love so the world can see what we're talking about. What real love is. They want to see Jesus. Ephesians 6.5, and I'll close. Slaves, be obedient to those who are your masters according to the flesh with fear and trembling but not by way of eye services, men pleasers, but as slaves of Christ doing the will of God. We've been set free from sin. We've been given the Holy Spirit so we can understand truth and grace that we might be able to be obedient to the truth that one day Jesus can say to us, Well done. Well done. You learned how to love. Father, we thank you for your great love for us. Oh, Lord, you're so good. And we can't even fathom what kind of love that is that that led you to endure the wrath of the Father for your enemies. and Yet you've given us that potential. Lord, we don't even get a hold of that sometimes when we're in situations, but Lord, help us to look to you. Folks today that may not know you that are here, Lord, draw them to yourself. Give them the faith that they might be able to believe and begin to experience your love. And Lord, fill this love up, this church up with your love, that we might love one another, that we might be a brighter light to show the world your love for us. And then we'll give you all the glory in Jesus' name.